Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hi, this is Kelly Lowry. I am a licensed professional counselor, and I have been drugged into this kicking and screaming today. Kelly's our resident expert on psychological issues, so we're going to touch on some of that after the break. Uh, there's a lot going on, so we're going to get into essentially everything that's going on. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Okay, well, with Phil and the other guys off uh, gallivanting around the country and uh, hosting seminars and whatnot, you're going to get sort of the professor approach here, at least until uh, my wife Kelly can join us after the break. Tons of news, and I think we'll tackle some of this first. Some of it's controversial. Uh, and again, take note that a lot of this news is it's just news, and you could agree or disagree. We're not necessarily presenting it as fact, although twice today – uh, we did stick to our usual uh, approach in that we'll report on the news and then we'll go to an actual scientific source to try to give some credence to one side or the other. Uh, I suggest if anybody's interested, there's the Institute of Fitness Technologists. They have a wellness newsletter. And if you want to know what's coming down the pike as far as new product development uh, that could affect you as a fitness enthusiast, lifter, etc., the IFT wellness newsletter is pretty cool. I'm going to touch on two things that are in the most recent one that just came out, uh, top stories uh, under the nutrition and health research category. The first one is called Nutritionists, Something's Fishy About the Paleo Diet. Now, I know this is a charged topic. Uh, a friend of mine, actually, Steve, Steve Hertzler, um, he and I both taught uh, in the nutrition department at Kent State at one point. Uh, he now works with EAS. Uh, in fact, I think he's a real feather in their cap, uh, to be honest. But he gave a uh, speech at a recent uh, conference. And again, this is from the IFT newsletter, wellness newsletter, October 20th. Uh, anyway, uh, he says the creators of the paleo diet suggest that the current agriculturally based diet is mismatched uh, with our genes, uh, which haven't really changed much, of course, for thousands of years. That's that's an accurate statement. Uh, he says many nutritionists, however, disagree with the paleo diet. And he goes on to say that the paleo diet permits the consumption, if you're not familiar, of uh, lean grass-fed meats, eggs, organ meats, fish and shellfish, nuts, fruits, and veg. Uh, he also goes on to list a few other things. Um, consumption of dairy foods, cereal grains, legumes, starchy veg, sweets, and sweetened beverages, and salty foods are not allowed on the paleo diet so again no dairy legumes some of the things that traditional nutritionists would actually uh, like according to dr hertzler uh, his problem with it and i think the problem he says with a lot of nutritionists is that uh it's restrictive right uh i admit i tend to worry a little bit about for example vegan uh lifters because they're removing whole portions of the various food guides and that does 
cause some concern for maybe you're missing something, right? Because variety is so important. Um, but essentially he was saying uh, this leads to this restriction, right? Eliminating certain things like the dairy and starchy veg and that sort of stuff actually leads to consumption of fewer calories and weight loss. Uh, but also not only just inadequate on the calorie side, which frankly I think is a lot of reason uh, many people like the CrossFit group uh, likes to do that, but uh, also inadequate levels of calcium, iron, dietary fiber, and carbohydrates. Now, before you start firing ugly emails, um, I'm sure that you can get adequate fiber uh, with the kinds of things that the paleo uh, pundits like. I mean, there's nuts in there, fruits, there's fibrous veg. But again, um, Dr. Herstler is pointing out that, again, calcium, iron, fiber, and carbohydrates may be inadequate on the diet. And then he also points out that populations around the world that have the longest lifespans in what, what are called blue zones, so Greece, Japan, you know, the whole idea of Mediterranean and Japanese diets, uh, those populations live much longer than Western diets. And he's pointing out that they do have, in fact, um, starchy veg, cereal grains, things like that as big parts of their diets. And, of course, they live a long time. Uh, again, a flip counter, uh, counter to this might be that, well, maybe, but that doesn't mean that they have the physique of an athlete. Uh, certainly, you can see some fairly long-lived people from Italy or Greece, and they're not always, you know, sporting the six-pack. So it, there's two things here we have to be careful not to switch the context, but... Uh, at the same time, he says, lastly, the research cited in the paleo diet books is often taken out of context uh, or used on uh, based on rodent models. And he says, in general, rodents are a poor model for comparison to humans in health and biology. Well, for some things, uh, that's very true. My own dissertation looked at a special type of fat, and it literally makes mice lose half their body fat in, in six weeks. It's ridiculous. And it doesn't do that with people. Uh, but I would also argue, I'd like to sit down and have a friendly chat with him because he's a great guy, very bright. Um, and I don't know, maybe in some sense he's uh, toning this down a little bit for fellow dietitians who are less used to uh, you know, the fitness industry and people who are really into the wellness and, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but those are his critiques, that the people in uh, long-lived countries aren't eating like that. They are eating some of the dairy and starchy things uh, and that animal – uh, model is maybe not the best for some of these things. So agree or disagree, uh, that's in the news. Again, this is October 20th, so it's new stuff. The other thing in this newsletter I want to highlight uh, is on collagen. Now, for years, I have said that collagen uh, is essentially useless biologically as a protein when it comes to protein synthesis and building muscle. And the reason for that is because collagen uh, has so few amino acids. I mean, it's nowhere near complete. It's In fact, to say it's incomplete is an understatement. It's very poor source of protein. And it always bothered me, of course, that they, they sneak collagen and gelatin and things like that into protein bars because it jacks up the nutrition grams on the nutrition fact label. So when you look at it, you see, oh, look, I'm getting 20 grams of protein when, in fact, you might be getting about 10 that's from the actual complete protein sources and the, you know the other 8 or 10 grams are just jacked up with collagen and gelatin. Well, there are some indications, and I know Dr. Nelson's been on the show. When Mike talks about this, Mike Nelson, he'll point out that uh, he saw a paper, I think a year or two ago, that collagen might help with appetite. Um, I mean, it, it, you are eating something. 
but this new one is throwing a monkey wrench in my thinking. And, and again, I think we have to be cautious in, in interpreting this. But the title here is Collagen Peptides May Help Prevent and Fight Sarcopenia. So sarcopenia is the uh, loss of muscle as we age. It's often accompanied with a gain in body fat. And it can be due to less physical activity, lower testosterone or sex hormones, a whole bunch of things. But anyway, a study published in the British Journal of Nutrition, that is a legitimate source, shows that consuming collagen peptides in combination with resistance training may help fight this sarcopenia, this loss of muscle. Uh, in a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, they investigated the effects of collagen peptides on the body composition and muscle strength of 60 men that were over age 65 that, in fact, were losing muscle. Uh, they were divided into two groups, and one group, uh, of course, got an uh, inert placebo. The other got collagen peptides. It was the Body Balance, I guess, by Jalita. I'm not selling that. It's just the brand they used. 15 grams given in a powder dissolved in a... 250 milliliters of water, so not quite a coffee cup full of water. Uh, they drank the solution within one hour after training. Uh, the report here from the IFT newsletter says they found that the peptides uh, did further enhance the benefits of resistance training. And again, knowing how incomplete collagen is, that really surprises me. I wonder what's going on here. I know uh, there's something called inter-organ exchange where muscles can borrow certain amino acids from other organs and that sort of thing. But to say that that's going to make up for such an incomplete protein is hard for me to believe. So I went and I looked at the actual study in the British Journal of Nutrition, and I can give you uh, a handful of specifics here. So for starters here, uh, this is from, oh boy, I'm going to destroy this name, Zdeblik, Z-D-Z-I-E-B-L-I-K, and colleagues. Um this is a German paper, uh, and it says, let's see, uh, they start off with the general statements about how we know that protein supplementation with resistance training enhances it. It only makes sense, right? Resistance training is the stimulus, we all know, and then you provide the building blocks at a timely uh, way. Anyway, the objective of this study was to assess the influence of post-exercise protein supplements with collagen peptides on muscle mass and strength following resistance training in elderly subjects. Now, this is 53 men, so I don't know why the um, journalist said 60. Maybe they're just rounding up uh, somehow. Um, 12 weeks guided resistance training program, and then they got that 15 grams of collagen. Uh, they looked at DEXA scans, which can look at both muscle and fat, right, body composition, and they did isokinetic quadriceps strength test. So isokinetic, if you're not familiar, it doesn't have a lot of real-world applicability. There's essentially a little wheel spinning the machine, and you can only contract at a certain speed with the wheel. So you can try um, – you, you can get force and power data and that sort of thing on slower uh, repetitions you know, because it forces you to contract more grinding and slowly or fast explosive because the wheel is spinning fast. Anyway, the effect was significantly more pronounced, the, the effects of the weight training program in the subjects receiving collagen peptides. Apparently, they gained uh, 4.2 kilos uh, of lean mass versus only 2.9 with the, um, the placebo group. And then quadriceps strength, also significantly greater. Um, I'm not going to bore you with newton meters and all of that. It comes out in different units but uh, than we're usually used to with free weight training. But um, and then it says fat mass, interestingly, also dropped. It dropped 5.4 kilograms in the uh, collagen group 
and only 3.5 kilos in the placebo group. So slightly bigger, slightly stronger, slightly leaner compared to the placebo. Again, everybody trained the same over 12 weeks. So stay tuned with that. I don't know. I bet dietary supplement companies are going to love that kind of stuff because collagen is cheap and they already stuff it into protein bars. But if it helps with appetite, like Dr. Nelson has pointed out in the past, potentially at least, or with muscle gain, again, this is preventing muscle loss really in uh, elderly subjects. So we need to be careful with the uh, population being studied. But maybe there's something more to collagen than I ever gave it credit for. So that's a little bit uh, of the science news. Our next bit of news is from The Guardian. And again, it's just news, but this is a real thing. This is a gadget. Uh, I've seen students do little mini reviews on this in the classroom before. The title of this, by the way, this is from Thomas from Twitter. So thank you, Thomas. Uh, Calorie counting machines won't help people lose weight. This is by Joanna Blythman. Uh, And again, it's um, mid to late October, so it's spanking new. If you think you should be counting calories in an attempt to lose or control weight, you are, on paper at least, an ideal candidate for the SCIO, S-C-I-O. Uh, it's a palm-held scanner, uses beams of light to detect the quantities of fat, carbs, and protein in food. So rather than trying to guess uh, portion sizes and then look at a table with calorie content, I mean, I think you still have to be careful with the portion size estimates, but um, what's amazing is it, it can use technology that's already used in the lab so this sort of a lot of these sorts of uh, spectroscopy and these different um, techniques they're legitimate but to put them in a handheld scanner and have them just point it you know be able to point it at your food and say oh look how many carbs of fats and proteins in there uh, that's a new thing it says the sio is currently available pre-order for 160 pounds uh, again this is uh, the guardian so uh, an alternative way of looking at this techno wizardry is that the SIO may already be redundant because calorie counting is last century's bankrupt diet concept. Now, this is where we're starting to inject not you know opinion along with a lot of this, uh, the, the factual reporting on the gadget. Um, it talks about clients getting fatter and fatter while dutifully exercising and counting calories. Uh, and bear with me, I have some thoughts on this already. But uh, furthermore, there's a growing body of research that suggests that different calorie sources... Uh, have significantly different effects on energy expenditure and hormones. Uh, Being fans of protein here on the show, and and most resistance trainers are, we know that, right? Protein is uh, more satisfying. It's a higher satiety value. Uh, The hormonal uh, response is different, and the thermic effect of food, the amount of energy that's required to sort of absorb and transport and process all that protein is higher, much higher than for carbs and fat. So maybe this is where she's going. Uh, The drift of scientific research on weight loss is moving away inexorably from the tunnel vision focus on calories to a more uh, holistic concept of the fullness factor, quote unquote. Uh, My own thinking uh, is based on common sense and observation, she says. Uh, And again, even if somebody follows this debate back and forth, uh, I think I'm taking this as a disclosure, right? This is now opinion. There's a lot of opinion written into this. It's not just a report. It's it's sort of a quasi-editorial. Uh, it says, if you want to stay slim uh, or keep your body fat down, the only practical alternative is to avoid processed foods and drinks as much as possible. Um, 
even if they have low-calorie labels, and then stick to whole food ingredients. Now, that's good advice, right? Because even the low-fat foods, we've been fussing about some of those emulsifiers like polysorbate 80 lately. There's all this stuff on whether or not um, artificial sweeteners, maybe saccharin worst of all, the pink stuff, but across the board maybe, artificial sweeteners interfering with your insulin sensitivity. Well, that's not good, right? One of the reasons people get fatter as they age, they become a little more insulin resistant and that kind of thing. It could also cause a certain element of anabolic resistance. So um, yeah, staying away from the processed stuff, that seems like good advice. Uh, I guess my concern with this is I would have liked this piece to talk a little bit more about exactly how it's detecting the fats and carbs and protein in food, again, for something so so small like a handheld device. Um, and we've talked about this before, and maybe I'll save this for when we can get the other guys back on the show, but energy balance is still the beginning of weight management. Uh, the way I usually describe this in the classroom is, is it's the beginning of weight management or fat loss. It's not the end-all, be-all. The truth is calorie balance does hold. Nobody's defying the laws of physics. The problem is your basal metabolic rate, uh, a lot of the estimation equations we use, like the Harris-Benedict or the Mifflin-St. Jor equation, we use these in the hospital, we use these with weight management, they, they calculate your BMR, but it really can't get at things like thyroid status and, and things like that or insulin resistance. It just generally uses like your gender, height, weight, and age. Uh, so we have to be very careful in understanding that we cannot know, uh, like our fingers on the pulse, exactly what our BMR is. And if basal metabolic rate, right, the energy you're burning just to sit there and be warmer than the world around you, um, that's like 65, maybe 70 percent of all the calories you burn every day. So that this creates a very difficult uh, arrangement where you're trying to eat more calories to gain or less calories to lose if you, your basal metabolic rate is dynamic, right? It's going up or down. It's not fixed. So I think we have to be careful. Uh, I do like the, the words she used about uh, we, don't, we can't have uh, tunnel vision uh, as far as focusing on calories and that sort of thing. I think that's true, but uh, make no mistake, uh, calories do matter. Uh, whether you do that by counting or restricting carbs or fats, you know, carbs have four calories in a gram. Fats have nine calories in a gram. So anyway, um, interesting bit on the technology. I would have liked to have seen more on exactly how the technology works because it could certainly affect our listenership. Again, the SIO. Uh, so you could Google that if you want. I think there are other brands perhaps as well. Okay, we have a little bit of Iron Radio news and related material here. Uh First off, I want to thank the following people who have chipped in on our fall funds drive. Uh, Alan, Dan, Delaney, Joe, Shannon, Neil. Thanks to all of you guys. Very much appreciated. Uh, those who listen regularly know I just had a catastrophic meltdown with my computer. Uh, in our bloopers episode of, uh, a few weeks back, I know Phil and uh, Mike were sort of laughing that I'm always – fiddling with this thing uh my old system and it was overheating i had a fan on it it was just ridiculous uh suffice it to say you tech people out there i learned i learned the importance of thermal paste on your cpu <laughs> but um that completely died and uh, the funds drives that we do allow us to pay servers and even helped 
me by uh, a new system, uh, not completely, but helped so we can keep doing the show amongst other things. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. There's software that I use. And if anybody's interested, write in and we'll explain to you. I'm happy to talk about this, how we do the podcast. If you go to YouTube, there's a whole bunch of very confusing videos showing people how to set up a podcasting network and uh, in their house and that sort of thing. And they've got multiple computers and handheld recorders. And, well, you don't really have to do it that way. Uh, Having said that, we've had our share of uh, tech issues. But thank you, guys and gals, for chipping in uh, like you do so we can keep this going. Uh, There's server issues. Oh, I can't even tell you. But there's hardware and software requirements that even though we do this uh, to give back to the community, there are realities. So if anybody uh, can chip in, that's why we do that $4 per month that you can do on ironradio.org or a single donation. There's different buttons there so you can uh, help if you like the news and uh, the community. All right, what else? Here's one from a new listener. Alan, you've been waiting for this, and I wanted to address this for you. This is um, a fairly lengthy email, but I wanted to address this. So he says, Dear Dr. Lowry, I'm new to both weight training and your podcast, which I stumbled upon about a week ago, having listened to 30 or so episodes. I find your uh, brand of experts to be very informative with evidence-based practices and experienced enough to provide true weight training wisdom. I'm definitely hooked on your podcast. I'm an older male attempting to improve my physique. I've always been active and I'm entering my 37th year as a master swimmer on a local swim club. Uh, I added road biking over the last 20 years. um, And with the last year, I've started more intense weight training and yoga. It's quite a bit of uh, exercise in addition to my full-time work as a physician. My wife thinks I'm exercise addicted, and she's probably right. Actually, everybody, this was not specifically planned, but when Kelly comes on after the break, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about super fans and not so much pure exercise addiction, but people who are really into it. Anyway, he says, about seven months ago, I experienced one of those life-changing events. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but he had a sudden cardiac arrest. Um so uh, there's some uh, details in here about the basically the tra- traumatic nature of this, which I don't think anybody would argue. Um, his workout partner was instrumental in helping all of this stuff. There was off-duty firefighters involved in that sort of thing. But he spent five days in the CCU, um, diagnosed with cardiomyopathy and that sort of thing, given a pacemaker and a defib. Uh, there's quite a few things uh, as far as the details. I think after the event here um, – He was unable to lift his arm for six weeks due to uh, some of the new hardware and things that are involved, Uh, unable to drive a car, exercise, or swim for three months. And I can only imagine how that would get to you psychologically. Uh, I imagine listeners, uh, if you couldn't lift for uh, three weeks, let alone three months, it would really – I think it would mess with all of our heads. Um, So since my EP cardiologist is concerned – uh, my swimming with r- repetitive arm movements, etc., may cause lead wire fatigue and failure. He's advised me to reduce my swimming, so I spent more time with the weight training. I currently follow an undulating periodization protocol. Actually, Alan, that's my favorite, uh, the undulating approach. Uh, with beach muscle split, so chest and buys on Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. Back, shoulders, and tries on Tuesday, Friday. Uh, and legs on Thursdays and Sundays. I include one heavy day a week for each of these body parts. And again, everyone, that's part of the idea of undulating. You 
undulate up and down between heavy and lighter days. Some undulating programs will go from heavy to medium to light. Um, if you really like the heavier stuff, maybe you go heavy, heavy, light, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, I'm swimming early morning, pre-breakfast, two or three days a week, and I ride my bike uh, once on the weekend, actually for about up to two hours here. Here's my problem. While I have gained about 12 pounds of weight and lost one to two inches on my waist since, since I started uh, resistance training a year ago, I've barely increased my one rep max in the bench press uh, from 215 up to two and a quarter. Considering I'm 6'2 and now 218, I'm a bit disappointed all my hard work hasn't paid off enough for strength. Could you and your crew advise me on how to improve on this? And again, we'll bring this up briefly with, I think Phil will be ideal next week, but Finally, I've heard you mention various levels of performance-enhancing drugs, uh, their use among weight trainers, and I'm beginning to recognize the massive guys at my gym must be chemically enhanced or genetically gifted, probably the former. Is PED use ubiquitous? Now, be brutally honest, have you and your cohorts used PEDs during some part of your careers? I've read the use of androgens even briefly may cause permanent muscle changes, uh, leading to long-term increases in size and strength. Uh, I've been baffled how someone is able to bench 600 pounds and wonder how consistent the PED use has been to become that strong. Uh, I'm not tempted to use performance-enhancing drugs, and I have a very normal T-level for my age, just curious about the unspoken issue. Thank you so much for your help in any way. Uh, you may answer on air if that's convenient. Sincerely, Alan. Uh, okay, Alan, a couple of things. Uh, if you're doing undulating periodization, if it sounds like things are moving in the right direction body comp-wise. If you're gaining uh, weight and losing some off your waist, uh, I would suggest patience. I mean, it can take months uh, for changes to occur. Uh, that may be age-related. I mean, you're talking about performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, central to performance-enhancing drugs, of course, are androgens and growth hormone. And one of the things that I learned early on uh, by participating in research was that your GH surge during exercise fades dramatically, almost down to a sad little blip by the time you're even in your mid-30s. So uh, older guys were, were relying more on the GH surge about 90 minutes into sleep, I think. Um, so there's lots of issues here. And again, thank you for the details. There are a lot of issues behind uh, training for strength. Like if your goal is like more of a bodybuilder type of thing, it sounds to me like you're doing pretty good. You're you're adding body weight and your waist is going down. If strength is your most important feature, I, I think Phil being the coach is the best person. We'll, we can get him to chip in next week. But um, generally, it's you can pull back on the volume. Instead of just doing undulating all the time, maybe you can consider changing up your periodization where you go through you know, six, eight, ten-week periods where you're just – uh, specifically working on moving more on the barbell. Uh, it's a different approach. Generally, it's a little bit higher intensity approach. There could be explosive work. Uh, like um, instead of like a bodybuilder that might do a burnout set at the end, maybe at the beginning of your workout during your warmups, you're doing really explosive, lighter weight, like 30% of your, your one rep max. Uh, best power output is somewhere around 30 to 50% for most people of their one rep max. And again, that's that combination of speed strength. And you might want to work on the speed strength side of things and the explosiveness uh, that might help. Or again, uh, I'll ask Phil specifically about how he ramps people up because he has all the experience. 
um, like I said, from the bodybuilding perspective, I think you're you're doing pretty good. And and I know you're a mature guy, but patience, patience. You know, it can take some time. Uh, oftentimes, you could go through a period of several weeks and not change much. And frankly, you just keep doing what you're doing and punching the clock, and then things may start to happen. I maybe again, I talked about how your basal metabolic rate is dynamic. Maybe something changes there, or nutritionally, or stress wise, sleep. Um, so patience also while you do this as far as performance enhancing drugs among the um the co-hosts uh, we've talked about this but we've done whole episodes on this in the past not just other people but ourselves and i think the important thing to realize is i mean the way i always i've always said it i i always competed hormonally challenged you know and i competed in open events and natural events but um, we talked about natural lifting and natural bodybuilding too. For some people, it gets too preachy. Uh, when I grew up, you know, through like the eighties, especially there was a lot of natural bodybuilding magazines and they were very preachy. You know, you can have that physique that's on the cover of the magazine. You just have to want it more and train longer and harder. No, uh, as I grew up and I studied nutrition and physiology, I can tell you that it's not a natural state of being. Um, you hear tales. Rob used to talk in some of the older episodes about guys like Kevin Lavroni, who'd go from like 195 pounds. Uh, and then like eight months later, he's ripped to shreds at 260 on the Olympia stage. That's not just androgens. That's, and again, I'm not talking about just Kevin Lavroni, but in general, those guys at the national level or higher, yes, performance enhancing drugs are almost ubiquitous. They're, um, they're allowing people to gain muscle mass and lose fat at the same time. And it, that combination, especially of um, grams, right? Not just milligrams like you might think for uh, clinical reasons, like 250 milligram injection of testosterone esters or something. But we're talking about two, three, four grams just of testosterone or different androgens esters as the base. Then they add in accessory meds, orals, um, IGF-1, growth hormone, uh, and big amounts too. And it's it's interesting that you can actually, at least my observation is you can see at the regional level, you'll see a combination of users and non-users. That's kind of where I would compete at the national level. Um, there's nobody natural in open competitions at, you know, at the national level. I, if they, if they say that they're an absolute anomaly, um, but I'm, I'm not really buying that to be completely frank. Um, and at the professional level, I mean, of course, of course. And it's it's the dosing too. So like at the uh, national level, regional to national, you start seeing people, they might take four IUs of growth hormone every other day and that sort of thing. And they talk backstage about this a little bit. And I would always compete and I would ask people about diet and um, a little bit of the med use. You got to be sort of careful with that, you know, because everybody understands that they're, what they're doing is not legal. Um but some guys are very open about it too. And I would almost be like a, you know, an anthropologist among some group, even though I was part of the group, sort of investigating what they do. But those doses just go up, up, up. Uh, and we have talked about that before. I would search the archives for um, performance enhancing drugs. There's also some stuff on ironradio.org where Fortress and I had very blunt conversations about uh, are steroids bad, for example, because the media just runs with that, I think, in often an ignorant way. Uh, and uh, just a few weeks ago, Phil was talking about, I think it was Bigger, Stronger, Faster, uh, but there are a couple documentaries out there that uh, some of them actually take a pretty good neutral look at it, and that's what we want, right? We want information, not not a sermon. 
So um, our stance here on the podcast is people make personal choices and we're not going to exclude someone because they're uh, using some testosterone in the off season or, you know, that kind of thing. So um, again, we're not condoning or telling everybody to go do it or uh, damning it. So uh, we'll try to get some more details for you, Alan, uh, in the future. Last one. Uh, how safe is your ground beef? I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I just want to touch on this quickly. If you don't know how the ground beef that you eat was raised, you may be putting yourself at higher risk of illness from dangerous bacteria. Are you okay with that? So this is from a toxicology portion of uh, technologynetworks.com. Uh, it talks about the American love affair with beef. And we said this before. Um, you can even go listen to someone like Anthony Bourdain, the uh, traveling chef, and he'll even acknowledge that beef is not sustainable decades and decades into the future uh, at the cost it is now. Uh, our food industry is pretty backwards in a lot of ways where it's more expensive to buy a chicken salad than it is to buy uh, beef, uh, like a burger. But uh, I digress. So it talks about red meat consumption has actually dropped overall in recent years, but we still bought 4.6 billion pounds of beef in the grocery and big box stores over the last year. It says, uh, and more of the beef we buy today is in the ground form, about 50% versus 42% a decade ago. But we like its convenience and its price. And I admit, I like the taste. I like a big, juicy burger. I think one of the things you need to be careful with, and I know where this is going, is that you can undercook a steak, and it can be pink. It can be like medium well or even medium rare in the middle, the sort of pink to almost reddish in the center. But that's because that's in the center. The outside of the steak is being seared at fairly high temperatures. With ground meat, though, uh, you grind up the external portion of the muscle of the cut of the meat, and you're, you're mixing it all. You're weaving it all together. So there's, you're taking the bacteria that was on the surface of the meat, and you're grinding it down and mixing it into the beef. So I don't know if anybody ever thought about that, but that's why it's usually sketchier. Um, it says the appetite that we have persists despite solid evidence, including new test results uh, here at oh Consumer Reports, uh, that ground beef can make you seriously sick, perhaps when it's uh, cooked rare or medium rare at temperatures under 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And I think a lot of us have seen the, the um, warnings in restaurants. It says up to 28% of Americans eat ground beef that's raw or undercooked says Hannah Gould, a PhD and epidemiologist at the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. Um, so again, it talks about potential contamination, especially in uh, the ground meat. It says food poisoning outbreaks and recalls of bacteria-tainted ground beef are all too frequent. Just before uh, the July 4th holiday in 2015, 13.5 tons of ground beef and steak destined for restaurants and other food services were recalled in a single day because it might have been contaminated with E. coli. Um, so it, again, it talks about particular strains of bacteria. I'm not going to go into a microbiology lecture on everybody, but there are several bugs that can make you uh, very sick. Uh, usually if you're a healthy adult with a strong immune system, uh, it's less threatening than if you're immunocompromised or very young or very old. Um, but it says between 2003 and 2012, there were almost 80 outbreaks of E. coli due to tainted beef. And it sickened um, well over 1,000 people, putting 316 in the hospital and actually killing five of them. And ground beef was the source. So I think the best thing I can tell all of you is um, use caution. Uh, 
On some level, we can't live in paranoia. The food industry supplies our ground beef and that sort of thing. But when it is ground, just take note of what I said. You're mixing in those surface bacteria oftentimes, and you can't get away with quite the level of uh, rawness in the center that you could if it was an intact, like a nice round steak or, uh, you know, your favorite steak. Okay, so I've rambled enough. We're going to go to break. When we come back, uh, Kelly's going to join us, and we're going to talk a little bit about super fans and um, the psychology of being a mega fan. And uh, because it's from a commercial or a public news source, we're going to weave in a little bit of uh, more legitimate stuff as well. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You can simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. I can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Every week, it's been our privilege to bring you weekly news, experts, and gym talk. Did you know that now roughly 20,000 brothers and sisters of Iron count on us for these things? Of course, not everyone can afford or to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. 
And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better Internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it Okay, everybody, we're back. It's Lonnie and Kelly, and uh, we're actually going to take a look at some articles that were online earlier this year. Uh, We'll take a peek at some American Psychological Association material on the fact, um, on the topic, but we're going to talk about super fans, and uh, Kelly's going to be a good person to describe this. I think of super fans or these mega fans as, you know, the people she's screaming at football games, their faces all painted orange and blue or whatever color their team is and that sort of thing. But my first question for you, Kelly, is um, have you been around uh, super fans, whether they were traditional type in a stadium or even like in muscle sports? On both fronts, very minor involvement. Um, Obviously, just being out in the public, you run into people who are in that mild to moderate super fan range. And then as far as the bodybuilders, it's the people who like to be around the big bodybuilders, who idolize the bodybuilders, who want to be like them. In a sense, I, I mean, when I go to uh, competitions or I look at people in the crowd, uh, one of the things that sort of strikes me is their... Um, the way that they relate, you know, like a lot of the fans that go and Fortress will sometimes talk about there are there's actually some creepy elements around bodybuilding. Actually, um, I won't go there. You can listen to some prior episodes with that kind of stuff. But just as far as the not so creepy, just, you know, psychologically very attached. Uh, yeah, you do see the guys that are sort of on display. And I see some similarities there with the guys with the the face paint and the costumes that are all dressed up and. Uh, I know you were uh, you and I were looking at this article from Huffington Post recently, and again, yes, that's just you know general population kind of news source. Uh, it's called "Inside the Mind of a Super Fan." Actually, it was from April, uh, back in April of 2015. But let me ask you about how a psychologist would actually identify a super fan. So I, I think this research is a couple of decades old now, but it's an interesting topic as, as far as the culture. Um, of sports. So I can look at someone and say, yeah, that guy is strongly self-attached in some way to the people that are on the stage and that sort of thing. But uh, how do you actually identify um, a super fan? Daniel Wan, W-A-N-N, a sports psychology professor at Murray State University. He discussed this. 
uh, the actual research was done in the 80s. The paper was published in 1993. And they used a sports spectator identification scale, the SSIS. Some of the questions that it used, um, specifically, how important to you is it that the team listed above wins? So they probably geared it towards that specific area. So in this case, it might be your, your favorite guy on the Olympia stage. And So how important, how do they measure that? Is it, is it like number, a number scale? Yes, they used um, one equaling not important up to eight, which equals very important. Okay, so we've got something about how important to you is it that the your guy wins, right? Um, what else? Uh, they also these are, this is just a sampling of the questions that they used. Um, and as far as deciding it, they rated them from low, moderate, or highly identified fan, which would be the super fan. So they're not just how important to you is it that your guy wins, but what is this here? How strongly, how strongly do you yourself as a fan of the team listed above? So how how strongly do you see yourself as a fan? And then how strongly other people see you as a fan of the sport? Okay, that makes sense to me, right? So it wouldn't just be like how much you identify, but especially in the muscle sports, I'm thinking it's it's probably important for a lot of people I see walking around the Arnold Classic or the Olympia that other people can identify them as fans or somehow participants. Yeah, the article later discusses it as an extension of yourself, the spectator. That's, I think, the impetus for a lot of this was um, unlike mainstream sports, basketball, football, baseball, some people are huge fans of those sports, but not all of them participate. And I would argue, I think, that a lot of the people in strength and muscle sports, um, it really even strengthens that super fan thing, right? I mean, if these questions here about, you know, how much you see yourself, you know, extension of yourself on the stage and that sort of stuff. Uh, lifters actually lift as well. I, they themselves lift. You know what I mean? So to me, it makes a lot of sense that they may even be a higher level of super fan because not everybody who's an armchair quarterback actually goes and plays football, right? I mean. Let me start with a quote. It's as if in your mind, you've experienced the same thing that the players have done. And in some ways, actually, the experience might even be more intense because at least the players can do something about it. They have some control in the outcome in relation to the sport that's being discussed. Oh, I get it. Okay, so they feel like if they cheer harder somehow, they'll affect the outcome. And I guess that makes sense to me, too. Uh, I think the the connecting thing, if you talk about similarities and differences with uh, muscle sport, you know, fans, people who actually go, and maybe this is more bodybuilding. I know on, in powerlifting and strongman people, family members, they're there to cheer you on. And I mean, or amateur bodybuilding, it'd be like what we've experienced in the past, you know, and where sometimes you and I would just attend something, which was actually more rare. Sometimes you're in the crowd while I'm competing or whatever, but it's more like family members and stuff. On the professional level, though, uh, I guess you can see that. I think the difference with bodybuilding, though, is there's no single event. Like, 
the work is done. The people are in shape on stage. All you can hope is that your favorite guy starts looking drier and harder and bigger as the show goes on or something. But there's no actual make or break event that you can kind of cheer for. You know what I mean? Uh, but let's go back to that display thing that we were talking about. So the football guys, fans, they're wearing costumes. I mean, I mean this article here that you have, the guy's wearing some kind of full-on body suit. He's not just painted up. And I can't help but think of some of the things that we both seen uh, in crowds, right? Not on stage, not fellow competitors, but in crowds, whether it's a big industry event or even a local event where these guys are on display. Well, as far as being a spectator, even within the crowd of a bodybuilding show, you see not competitors, spectators, diodermed um carrying around a gallon jug of distilled water. <laughs> right, right. You know, in fact, I guess they are painted. You know, we're talking about super fans all painting themselves up. Uh, some people may not believe it, but make no mistake, if you go to one of these events that are big enough, you see people walking around, and they actually have fake tan. They have dioderm on. They very much are on display, and they want to be identified as a bodybuilder, I think. You know, and they're not competing. You know, they're not doing the months of starvation and all that kind of stuff. But they do train themselves. Maybe they do diet themselves. I'm just saying not to a competition level. And if anybody thinks that eating healthy is the same thing as dieting for a show, no, it's not. Um, it's it's not the same thing. But there is that element of display, I think, and identification. Okay, so in comparing the super fans of sports activities, basketball, football, and the super fan of bodybuilding or powerlifting, the difference is that most of the super fans of the bodybuilding and powerlifting actually do compete, at least on some level. Whereas the mainstream guys could just be some, frankly, some overweight person slumped over on the couch with cheese puffs or something like that. So you had a quote from the American Psychological Association, or there, there's something uh, from that article. Was that the president who wrote that? Yeah, it's from the president's column. So I, I'm assuming each year or each month he does it. And the particular quote is, Sport touches central psychological issues in physical and emotional development, self-appraisal, self-esteem, belongingness and learning to overcome adversity. Sports psychologists have a broad portfolio focusing on behaviors such as goal setting, training regimes, health enhancement, concentration and attention, dealing with injury and rehabilitation, advocacy, mental training and visualization, and teamwork. These psychologists also work to address a hurt some of us may have experienced as kids, being picked last for a team at recess, which can devastate a child's emerging self-esteem. Yeah, the self-esteem thing may drive a lot of people's uh, goal, I think, as far as becoming very strong or bigger than everybody else. I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing, but I can see where it could be for some people. And let's face it, not everybody in the strength and muscle sports are super fans. Uh, a lot of people, they do compete themselves or they just – they're just interested, you know, you part of a community and that sort of thing. Uh, I'd love to get a sports psych person on here that focuses on like pre-game visualization and that kind of thing instead of some of these general 
psych issues. You know, I mean, I know you're not a sport psych psychologist, but you're definitely more trained than we are on this stuff. Um, in fact, that column, if I'm looking at this here, enhancing our lives with exercise and sport. So uh, aside from some of the biological things, uh, it is interesting that he's sort of pushing the sport psych people. So much of what you just read, though, also touches the lives of a coach, you know, or is driven by a coach. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about this before, but so many professions are highly paid. And Phil will be the first to point out how many times someone's come up to him and they wanted free advice, essentially free coaching advice, uh, training, coaching, nutrition. And the funny thing is these are licensed professions where people make 100 or more dollars per hour uh, working with patients and clients, but for whatever reason, in in uh, the strength sports, you're expected just to give up this information for free, you know, uh, and that sort of thing. Now we do have listeners who ask specific questions, and that's different. But uh, again, uh, John, Mike, Mike Nelson, Phil, me, Rob, anybody who has done this show can tell you that there are a lot of people out there who they'll send you big emails like. Put me on a training and nutrition program. I want to gain some weight. Not realizing that the the number of assessments that you're talking about, the time investment, sometimes the equipment that you need, there's just such an enormous amount that goes into that. You know, set me up on everything. But I guess it's good that the APA is acknowledging that you, we do enhance ourselves, you know, with this. Uh, I'm sure that people at like Strength Guild, they can talk about there's a sense of teamwork, even though it's an individual sport. I'm sure wrestlers feel that. There's a lot of people. I think the CrossFitters really feel that. That's something that CrossFit has brought to the muscle sports is that teamwork kind of thing. Well, it's also a sense of camaraderie. Yeah, community. I mean, that's why I think podcasts uh, like this help. You know, you try to put out some quality information, but also uh, just that, yeah, you're right, that camaraderie and the, the iron brother and sisterhood kind of thing. Okay, well, that's about it for, for today. Uh, I just wanted to touch on this article again it was sparked by this article about super fans because you can clearly uh, walk around some of these big events and see people that very strongly identify with who's on the stage uh, almost like they're an extension of themselves to the point I think in muscle sports that they're training at it themselves and it is a good point that's actually good in a way you know so you don't want to just mock but I think in strength and muscle sports, you could participate in these things as a grown-up after college, after high school. I mean, into your 30s, 40s, and beyond, you can keep doing this, actually at a competitive level. You know what I mean? And that that does enhance you, both psychologically, spiritually, physically, all that kind of stuff. So uh, you don't have to drift necessarily into super fan category to do that. It's just an interesting, I think, phenomenon. So any last thoughts or anything that we may have missed? Well, in the article about the superfan, Dr. Wan discussed how the superfan actually expresses the emotions that they normally might not. So on a social level, they're being there. They're being present. They're emotional. Well, I guess emoting is a good thing. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of huge bearded powerlifters want to sit around and emote, you know, share their emotions with their buddies over a cup of tea kind of thing. So, yeah, it brings out that chance for more extreme emotion. All right. Well, uh, that's going to be it, everybody. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll get some more people on uh, usual co host back next week. We have a large list of guests that we're lining up. And now that uh, I have a computer to do this again, 
Actually, we're getting some new software that's going to enhance a few things as well. Uh, my long-term goals, boost the website, do a lot of things here, actually. We've had some listeners help, uh, actually offer to help with the website, and I appreciate that very much. I'm pretty crude with the HTML and the cascading style sheets and all the stuff that goes into redoing the website in a, a better format. Um, but... So we'll be back next week uh, with the usual crew. Thanks for joining us. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for there are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.